This podcast is brought to you by the Scripps College of Communication at Ohio University. It not only educates its students about today's communication industry, but it produces innovative leaders. For more information, go to ohio.edu slash Scripps College. Welcome to Spectrum. Spectrum features conversations with an eclectic group of people. Some are famous and some aren't, but the common thread is that they all have captivating stories. Today, we're talking with Roger Mark D'Souza. He's the Director of Population, Environmental Security, and Resilience for the Wilson Center in Washington, D.C. He leads programs on climate change, resilience, reproductive and maternal health, environmental security, and livelihoods, including the Global Sustainability and Resilience Program, Environmental Change and Security Program, and Maternal Health Initiative. We're talking with him about hurricane damage, especially in Puerto Rico, and what can be done about it. I just want to sort of go over everything from uh, soup to nuts. So uh, if I ask you an obvious question, it's because I, I think that my listeners probably won't know. So uh, sure. so uh, if if I ask something mundane, forgive me, and, and, and we'll go with that. All right? Sure, no, no problem. All right. Let's get started then. Uh, Roger Mark, it, I know that you have not been to Puerto Rico or the Virgin Islands since the storms, but I I understand that you have people on the ground that you have been talking to. Uh, Can you give us a description of the devastation that that we can understand? You know, I I think what we know in terms of uh, Puerto Rico and the Virgin Islands is that it is really a very bad um, situation right now. And, and we're not um, fully aware of everything that's going on, which is part of the difficult communications at the moment is uh, very, are very difficult. But what we know is when we look at Puerto Rico, we have a sense that uh, about half of the population on the island so there are about 3.4 million residents, they lack access to clean drinking water. So once the devastation has occurred, um, many people are finding themselves without electricity. There's 95% approximately without electricity. More than half of the population is without water. Estimates indicate that more than 18, 80% of the cables are out, so there's practically very little power. Um, folks are unable to find any resources for help. Um, you know, for example, businesses, their credit card machines are down. People are lining up to try and get money at the ATMs. ATMs are running out of cash um, about one-third of the population has cell phone service. And when I talk to my colleagues who are Puerto Rican or who are in Puerto Rico, they say, you know, part of it is we live in a vulnerable uh, area. We know these things are going to happen. 
But the real concern that people have is not knowing whether their families are alive or how they're faring or what they're doing. They recognize that there's a need for recovery, but the immediate concern is just how are they doing? Are they okay? I can't talk to them. How can I find out what's going on? So there's a devastation, there's a lack of connectivity, there's lack of services, but there's just this huge unknown. What's going on? And that's the really scary part. You've said in uh, an article when you were talking just about Irma without uh, the the second hurricane coming through, Maria, uh, it, that this is not an island issue. It's not a Caribbean issue. Uh, it's it's more than that. Can you describe what you meant by that? You know, it's, it's interesting because right now I'm speaking to you from the Caribbean, and we have just had a conversation over two days with folks from the Caribbean and from the South Pacific, so all islanders who say, listen, this is an inherent part of island life. We know that we live in small, concentrated spaces, most of our development is on the coast. When things happen, we don't have room inside of our islands where we can retreat. There's nowhere to go. And we don't have the financial resources nor the ability to build to resist these challenges. What's interesting is when we talk and engage with others in the United States, in other countries in Asia, they're also saying that we are facing these similar vulnerabilities. So we at the Wilson Center have a collaboration with the Hoover, Hoover Institute and Stanford University, whereby we're looking at issues around coastal resilience in the United States. So we're looking at coastal populations throughout our country, and we're seeing the same vulnerabilities. So... We, it would be false for us in the United States, and we've seen this in, in Miami and in Houston, to think that this only occurs overseas in developing countries, in poor nations, in small vulnerable islands. We, in the United States, particularly in dense coastal areas where there's significant development, we live in harm's way. And because we live in harm's way, we are susceptible to these same damages, these same impacts. So really, is not an island issue. In many regards, this is the new normal, and it means that we throughout the world need to be thinking about it and planning for these kinds of impacts. I still uh, detected, and and perhaps I'm mistaken, and you can jump in and certainly correct me, but I've detected, though, a, a mainland bias, and, and I, that's my term. It's not a, a term of art, that we think, okay, f- this shouldn't have happened to, to Houston area. This, this really shouldn't have happened to Florida. Uh, let's take care of it as a people and as a government. But, you know, those islands down there, they, they should expect this and and they should uh, take care of themselves. Uh, is that exaggerated on my part? 
No, as a fact, I, I like your terminology, a mainland buyer. I might use that in the future, but thank <laughs> okay. you. Um, you know, <laughs> I, I think it's, it's interesting. Um, there's a sense of a, a bias that's coming um, from us. We are protected on the mainland. We are protected in the United States. We are protected because we're economically developed. We are protected because when things occur in a Miami or in a Houston, we um, expect that there are resources that can be mobilized to provide assistance and to help us. So part of it is a mainland bias. I agree with you um, part of the way. But another part of it is that we will have the resources. So whatever happens, we will find a way to deal with it. Whereas these smaller islands, they're poorer, they're more vulnerable, so they are already going to be stuck. But at some point, you know, we look at a Stanley, we look at a Katrina, we in the United States are also facing these threats. And we're not always able to respond adequately. And, you know, what, what measure of value do you put on people's lives? People are at risk. And, you know, even if these things occur, if these hazards become disasters, there will be loss of life. So we have a responsibility to be thinking about and planning for that impact. In another article I, I read uh, of yours, uh, or one that you were quoted in, uh, I, I believe you rated the infrastructure uh, that we have in our country at about a D plus. Uh, talk about the interrelationship, if you would, between our crumbling or deteriorating infrastructure and the damage that we're seeing from climate change or whatever the reason uh, that we're seeing the, the storms and, and natural disasters? So, you know, we're looking at the types of impact like um, strong winds, sea level rise, storm surges, flooding, um, that really with a crumbling infrastructure that has that, that's old, it's crumbling. It has not been built with the ability to withstand these kinds of challenges. It means that we are looking at an infrastructure, buildings, bridges, roads that will collapse and, and result in more loss of property, more loss of life, further damage. So um, it's going to be important for us to think about what that means. Um, in terms of how we build back and what types of materials and where we position, when we build back, where do we place that infrastructure and the degree to which we look at estimates of projected sea level rise, for example, and how we would plan for that. Just, just today, um, I'm currently in Trinidad and Tobago, and I was chatting with the head of the executive director of the Caribbean Disaster Emergency Management Agency. So this is the agency throughout the Caribbean basin. Puerto Rico is, is not a part of their coverage area because of its status with the United States. 
but, but it was looking at these smaller islands, and he said to me, it was quite fascinating. He had just come back from Dominica, from Barbuda, right. these other smaller islands that had been severely hit. And he said to me, Roger Mark, it's amazing. There are buildings that are fully standing. Their, their roofs are still on. They've lost a window or door. But these are strong, resilient buildings that withstood the hurricane. And he said, you look all around, and there's complete devastation. And he said, this is, this is an, an, an intriguing image to see complete devastation around. But these lone buildings that were built in anticipation of these kinds of impacts are still standing. And to me, that's an incredible image and story. And it means that there is a possibility to build in ways that we can reduce some of the damage and continue to think about what that means for saving lives um, moving forward. When when you have such devastation, you say 95% without electricity, uh, 3.4 million with, without drinking water, and, and when you have such extensive devastation— does that give uh, a, a, an area a, a clean slate to rebuild with these new building techniques and better building techniques? Or is it just, let's put up something slapdash to, to get something fixed for now? Well, yeah, I think that's a really good question. And I'm glad that you asked that because I think the response is, is both. Actually, um, you know, we think we've seen after disaster occurs like this, there's a strong desire by the communities to, to go back to what they had as quickly as possible, as much as possible. And in fact, some of the um, laws and regulations that we have in the United States for federal funding um, that communities that are destroyed or lose infrastructure, they are only able to secure federal funding to rebuild if they go back to the exact location of where those buildings or infrastructure communities were previously. So if a community says, listen, I'm going to relocate, I anticipate something is going to happen I look at the projections of the Army Corps of Engineers, and I am living in harm's way. I am voluntarily going to relocate. That community is very hard-pressed to get funding or support. Or if they decide to, to, everything has been destroyed and they say, I'd like to rebuild somewhere else, they're not able to accept federal funding. So within the United States, within our country, there is a delay and a lapse in policy keeping up with this new reality. Now, you look at a country like Grenada, and, you know, Grenada was destroyed about 90% um, uh, about 10 years ago, and Grenada has rebuilt um, and is now putting in place a number of initiatives to deal with climate change impact. doesn't mean that it's less vulnerable, but it means that there's an opportunity what is the, the challenges around where do they rebuild, how do they rebuild, 
how do they secure financing to rebuild and the degree to which there are opportunities to manage and mitigate the risk. So, in, for example, in the Caribbean, there's a Caribbean risk pool that countries buy into. And if a disaster occurs, they're able to automatically get disbursements to deal with that damage. Um, and those mechanisms are very helpful. But on the, on the other um, hand, you have some insurance companies that are refusing to provide insurance coverage um, so there's no payout if there's destruction. So those communities are hard-pressed to rebuild. So there's a desire at the community level to just build something back quickly, which is fully understandable. They want to get stability, but there's a real need to build back better, stronger, more resilient, more thoughtfully. But there are challenges around financing and the ability to do that. We'll be back after this message. The Scripps College of Communication at Ohio University is comprised of five schools, each offering a variety of majors and programs for students who want to pursue communication-related careers. From the highly technical information and telecommunication systems to the theoretical communication studies and everything in between, Programs in the college offer students both the fundamentals of communication practice and the tenacity and skills to further advance the field. In addition, the college is home to four centers and institutes that enable students to gain hands-on experience and learn new skills. You can learn more at ohio.edu slash Scripps College. You have studied this uh, quite in, in depth, uh, Roger Mark, and, and, and one of the things that struck me in reading some of the things that you've written, uh, you said that these natural disasters, be they hurricanes or fires or uh, the, the whole category of natural disaster, uh, is causing a threat to U.S. national security. Uh, that's something that we don't hear often. So could could you explain what you mean by that? So I, I, I think there are multiple threats to, to um, U.S. security in terms of natural disasters. Number one, um, the military is very often called to respond when a disaster occurs. So there are questions of the, the military being able to mobilize very quickly because logistics are in place. It's very expensive um, for the military to respond to natural disaster and, and, and to provide assistance. So there's a cost to the budget that we use for our defense um, when we have to um, uh, respond to disasters. So that's one concern. There's another concern with regard to bases that we have in coastal areas like Hampton Roads that may be susceptible to sea level rise or storm surge or flooding, which means that operationally those bases uh, will not be able to function. So we have to think about what that means 
for our operations and installations within the United States. And then the additional concern internationally is that we know um, very often disasters are in occurring where there are multiple vulnerabilities. So these are areas where there's a strong coastal development, there may be high levels of poverty and insecurity, there may be um, instability in those countries, people will be displaced. It means that we then have to deal with potential um, folks who have been displaced, who may be looking to, to come um, to the United States for refuge. Um, so it leads to more instability, and the more frequent um, these uh, events are, we see them leading to greater instability and leading to some outbreaks of conflict. So there is greater conflict or pockets of conflict internationally um, with climate change impact that means there's greater instability, um, and particularly if that is occurring in areas of the Middle East and North Africa, it raises some security concerns for us in terms of increased um, conflict um, and disenfranchisement of communities in those societies. So there, we are affected from a security angle um, on various levels. So operationally, in terms of our budget, in terms of having to respond from a humanitarian uh, perspective, and then pockets of instability that occur uh, when these events uh, happen. We think of it as a threat multiplier. One of the areas of your study and and policy uh, examination is the area of resilience. Uh, that's a word that yeah. is uh, not, I don't think, commonly understood and certainly not understood in the wake of, of such devastation that, that we've seen. Yeah. But, but you actually think that there can be some resilience dividends. So, could, could you give us some hope and talk about resilience and talk about what dividends there might be? Yeah, so it, it, um, I'm really glad that you asked this question. This, this term resilience has become increasingly popular, and not everyone understands what it means or what it refers to. And I was recently talking to, to a colleague who said to me, you know, with resilience, it means that things are going to happen, we have these hazards, they become disasters, there's a loss of life, there's additional conflict, there's um, instability, there's loss and, and damage to property. So these things happen, we know that they're going to happen. We think about the areas where they will happen, we plan for them, we anticipate them, and we figure out what we will do when they occur. So this is the idea of resilience. You have a sense that we are vulnerable, you map out these vulnerabilities, you figure out what we're going to do, and you do it. So this is what the idea of resilience is. People say, well, okay, um, you think about those things, but these disasters will not occur everywhere. So we say, no, that's correct. They will not occur everywhere, but they're benefits from, for preparing for resilience. 
Um, because when you um, use a resilience approach, you begin to involve communities, you develop additional backup systems, so-called redundancies, so that if there's no electricity, you have a backup gas stove or an additional generator. So that's an example of a redundancy or resiliency approach. So you have backup systems. You have a plan B. So um, there are benefits in terms of community cohesion, economic development, um, and additional ways to earn one's living, livelihood, opportunities, when you plan for resilience. So when um, events become disastrous, when hazards occur and there are disasters, we have the sense that if, we, if the disasters don't occur, there will be benefits if we use resilience planning. And when a disaster occurs, if we can help prevent damages when the disaster occurs, so you're reducing the level of damage, you also help and encourage local development. So there are private actors that begin to generate new ways for productivity at a local level. That's very engaging. And then the more people collaborate across the natural resource management, economic uh, production, the private sector, community empowerment, there begins to be a multiple benefits at that level at the community. So dividends and resilience planning is a good thing. It's a good approach, and it helps deal with disasters when they occur. This this next question, and, and I'm I'm getting close to wrapping up, and I I really appreciate your time. But but sure. uh, uh, forgive me for for asking it, but it, it, I think it has to be asked. Uh, we see in the United States uh, a new form of xenophobia and a, a new form of, uh, you know, what happens here should be taken care of, but we don't really care what happens other places. Uh, is, is there a class component to we don't care about these islands in the Caribbean uh we like to go there and be tourists there, but sure. we, we wouldn't want to live there. So they can take care of themselves. Is it a, a class bias, a, a racial bias, uh, or am I mistaken? You know, I think it's a really good and important question. I don't know that it's so much a class bias or racial bias. More, uh, it's a question of a privileged buyer. Okay. You know, it, it's okay. because we live um, in a certain way, we're fairly comfortable in our lifestyles in the United States. We're happy to visit these locations and experience the benefits of, of these wonderful locations um, in when we are there for vacation. But, but ultimately... I have found that many Americans are, are quite generous in their outlook and perspective. And I have had so many of my, my colleagues and neighbors and friends say what we can do to help. Um, so there is a real sense of 
connection and community and engagement, which I think gets at the heart of who we are as Americans. This is really what is good about us and our communities. So I think there is a lot of political divide now. But more and more, I see Americans saying, listen, this is what unites us. Um, we recognize that these smaller islands are vulnerable, but we're seeing it on the mainland also. Um, so it is my hope that that spirit of connectivity, that we're all in this together, that we have a role to play, and ultimately that we are vulnerable also. It's something that will continue to spur us as Americans to engagement, to assistance, to learning, and to thinking about um, ways that helping others will also help us ultimately. I want to thank you for your time. You've been most gracious. I, I know you're in Trinidad, right, at this time? That's correct, yeah. And, and uh, for you taking time out of your evening, I, I, I really, really appreciate it. So thank you so much. No, thank you. It's my pleasure. Take care. Bye-bye. Today, we've been talking with Roger Mark D'Souza, the Director of Population, Environmental Security, and Resilience for the Wilson Center in Washington, D.C. We've been talking about hurricane damage, especially that in Puerto Rico. Spectrum is produced by WOUB Public Media. Adam Rich is our co-producer. I'm your host, Tom Hudson. Please subscribe to Spectrum at Apple Podcasts, Google Play, or at NPR One. We welcome your feedback, so please rate our podcast or review it to Apple Podcasts. If you have any questions or comments about any of our podcasts, please direct them to me by email at hodson at ohio.edu. That's hodson, H-O-D-S-O-N, at ohio.edu.